Hi, this is Jeff, host of the podcast. I have two quick things to tell you before we dive into my latest interview. First, if you use the Stitcher app for listening to podcasts, you need to listen to this. Unfortunately, the Stitcher app is closing at the end of August, so you'll need to find a new podcast app, either for Android or your iPhone. And when you start using your new podcast listening app, don't forget to subscribe to the Reading and Writing Podcast so you won't miss a single episode. I have a podcast that I want to tell you about. I think you will like it. The Amelia Project. Have you ever wanted to disappear and start over? What if there was a company that could provide such a service? The Amelia Project is a fiction comedy podcast about a death-faking company. It is dark as cocoa beans and as silly as rainbow sprinkles. The Amelia Project is crammed full of comedy, mystery, twists, and fine beverages. If you like Sherlock Holmes, Dirk Gently, or Monty Python, this will be your cup of cocoa. You can listen to the Amelia Project podcast today wherever you get your podcasts. Search for the Amelia Project and look out for the logo of a black and orange phoenix rising from a cup. Listen today. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm joined on the podcast today by J.C. Hallman, author of the new book, Say Anarcha, A Young Woman, A Devious Surgeon, and the Harrowing Birth of Modern Women's Health. Brian Stevenson, best-selling author of Just Mercy and founder and executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative, wrote about the book. This compelling, extremely well-researched account of the life of an enslaved Black woman changes the historical narrative surrounding J. Marion Sims and engages us in a sober reckoning over the legacy of slavery, medical experimentation, and gynecology. This extraordinary book forces us to recognize that Anarcha is a name we should say remember and reflect upon as we still contend with a history of racial injustice that has left us vulnerable to continuing racial disparities in healthcare, injustice, and unnecessary suffering. JC, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Well, if someone hasn't yet heard about your new book, Say Anarcha, how would you describe the book? So the book is a dual biography, and and even though it is a very heavily researched book, it's a it is a history that reads like a novel, and it is simultaneously a um, a kind of forensic digging into the legacy of the so called father of gynecology, J. Marion Sims, and at the same time. It's an excavation of the life of um, the young enslaved woman who was the most consequential of uh, the experimental subjects that made Sims famous. So she's a lost hero, Anarcha. And so at the same time, I'm, I'm taking apart Sims' legacy. I'm trying to bring her story to life as well. And um, in, a, in a book that aspires to read something like a novel. Uh, I'm trying to to do justice to this important and often overlooked piece of history of, him, of women's health. 
And what led you to writing, say, Anarcha? I um, first just kind of stumbled across the story. You know, I think that, you know, I'm the author of, um, of six earlier books, and I think that in each of them, you know, I'm, I'm trying to make the world a better place in some way. Sometimes that's um, almost a sort of a, a way that's visible only to me. Sometimes it's a little more apparent. Um, and in this case, I came across this story and I realized that it was really important. And, and in particular, even though people had written about this diabolical surgeon previously, what became apparent was that no one had actually gone looking for a narca. No one had tried to see if any evidence of her could be found. And, and so um, that became sort of the animating thing, that this was a story that needed to be told that I had the right skill set, I had the right resources, I knew how to do it, and um, and so that was that was the that was the launching off point, the 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 search for Anarka. And and given what you just described, and given the time period when Anarka lived, how did you approach the research for this book and trying to discover more information about her life? Well, it was a it was a long period of of gathering. You know, um, it 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 was it was much more than than you know just researching online or or looking in you know some you know like the the the, the deeper dives you can take on Internet Archive or on Hathi Trust or in some of the some of the more the, the sources that can take you to very old documents online. It involved you know going to places. The, these experiments originally took place in Alabama. And um, uh, so I went to Alabama and, and began doing work in archives, but then ultimately um, probate offices um, and, um, you know, in various historical societies, local historical societies. Uh, and, and then ultimately, you know, just being on the ground and talking to people and figuring out who had private manuscript collections. You know, it became... Um, you know, something like a treasure hunt almost, you know, that, that um, searching for evidence really all across the country, it turned out to find evidence of this important life. Well, as you just described, I'm, I'm curious about the, the writing process for this book and until you got into that research and, and going to Alabama and, and looking for uh, records and manuscripts, did you know if there would be enough material to tell the story that you wanted to write? Well, it, it happened in stages, you know, so the first thing I did is I went to Alabama for a, for a brief trip. And, um, you know, that the, the curious thing about this particular story is that, you know, this woman, Anarka, was known to have existed, but she was known to have existed only because this diabolical doctor had talked about her. And no one really trusted him, but he was the only source material that anybody had. So when I first went to Alabama, it was it was really just to see if any evidence at all could be found. And um, uh, and so you know it it was going to an archive and um, and looking in some plantation estate materials and finding that first evidence of her that confirmed her existence. And then not too much later after that, you know, this doctor, he left Alabama eventually and he went to New York City and he opened a hospital there known as Woman's Hospital. And I found the records of that hospital at another archive. And, and then I found Anarka there as well, which was a big surprise because 
no one knew anything about her. No one really knew what had happened to her. And here I stumbled across something that suggested that she'd left Alabama, that she had actually been in New York and that Sims had experimented on her, not only in this initial group of experiments that lasted from 1846 to 49, but eight years later, again, in 1857. And, and so in terms of my process, you know, that was what I had. That was when I knew I was on a story. Um, but you're right. It was, it was, it, it took more than that. And eventually, um, I had to go back to Alabama. And this is a couple of years later when I'm, when I'm, you know, researching other aspects of the story and making myself familiar with a lot of the secondary materials. But I go back to to Alabama to gather more information, to, to do a much more in-depth search. So that initial trip, that initial discovery was just to say, what well, could she be found? And then the subsequent work, which was a you know, months-long process of searching and gathering, that was, um, uh, that was the work of actually producing, discovering the materials upon which the book would, would then be based. Well, given what you just described, probate records, uh, these historical hospital records that are decades old, if if not, you know, much much older. Do you do you know? Are there any organizations that are trying to get some of that that um, those records digitized and available? Um, you know, it's it's a it's a very controversial history. And, um, some of the stuff is available online, but some of it, you know, that there, are, there are guys, there are people out there who are still champions of this diabolical doctor. And sometimes there are efforts to hide those materials or to make them not available. And, and so, you know, it was, it was sometimes a battle just to get to them at all. And, um, you know, it's, I'm, I'm I'm a, I'm a little worried that we're we're making the book sound like it's a scholarly because this is a this this is you know we're talking about sources and we're talking about history and sure and and it it's it, it is you know that but this is a weird case where where you know someone who's trained as a creative writer I'm a creative I was trained as a creative writer but I wound up doing a lot of the digging that we normally associate with scholarship but um it struck me from the very beginning that this was a story that needed to be told in, in, you know, in, in scenes and in characters, it, you know, it all needed to feel lived in a way. And, and so even though the book is, is very heavily researched, you know, the, the way that it reads, I hope is, is, um, is, is that it's a story. And I think it's, it's important that that story be based on all of that new information that I uncovered. But, it's not only a book for for scholars say it's you know it's intended for people who want to read a compelling story a difficult story um but a story which allows us to bear a kind of witness to um an important uh and an often misrepresented bit of history sure well before you wrote this book what would most doctors have known about dr j marion sims so Sims was heralded. He was one of the world's first celebrity surgeons, and and he um, had plenty of critics in his own day for his methods and what he did. Um, but particularly early in the 20th century, those voices tended to be drowned out by a 
a kind of mob of, of um, champions and apologists. And so um, there's a lot of things about Sims that people believe that are just demonstrably false, but it's a very, very deeply entrenched history. And because that history is, is so relevant to even how we think about women's health today and women's bodily autonomy, um, it is important to reevaluate that history and to dig deep into the sources to, to find out what really happened. And, the, you know, and that was the work I was trying to do. But again, in, in, in telling the story, to tell it in a way that wasn't going to have the story be you know, something that only you know, scholars would debate at conferences and stuff. Sure. Well, you mentioned you you reference Sims as diabolical. Can you can you give us a sense of, of why you're using that word? Well, you know, it's it's you know he, he you know, one of the stories I tell in the book is that he was friends with P.T. Barnum, um, you know, the the well known showman, the guy who's really the godfather of everybody who ever you know um, uh, called themselves a showman since or was thought of as being a showman, and 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 it. It was it was just apparent in looking at, at you know in, in in digging forensically into his story, and essentially fact checking everything he said about himself and what others said about him, that he was he was a craven pursuer of fame and wealth, and um, you know I think he's 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 not the kind he's not Jonas Salk right he's not like a doctor who we herald for having made. Um, you know, um, uh, this essential advance. I mean, he, he, he actually is, is that, I mean, he's in the sense that people do believe that about him. There were statues erected to him and so on, but it turns out that all of it is false. And all of it was, a was a function of, of Sim's own efforts at self aggrandization. Uh, but also again, that, that mob of apologists who worked to erect, uh, a, a biographical facade to this guy that just turns out to be false in so many ways. Well, in researching this interview, I ran across several articles that attributed vaccine hesitancy among African-Americans to Sims legacy. Can you explain that a little bit more? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that African-Americans have long had a, um, uh, a, a, a well-founded, um, concern that doctors in the medical community are not going to have their best interests at heart. And, you know, it's, it's, there's longstanding beliefs that, that black women don't feel pain. Um, there's, there's the, the many times that, that, um, uh, that African Americans have been subjected to medical experimentation without their consent. Um, that, that history goes way back. And, um, and, and Sims is part of that, you know, these, this, ex this series of experiments performed on Anarka and on approximately nine other enslaved women in Montgomery, Alabama, um, in 18, the late 1840s, um, is, is what is just one of the early examples of that. And, uh, and so that kind of foundational history of, of abuse, it echoes down through time. And, and it doesn't just go away. And so in the pandemic, when African-Americans in particular were expressing some concern about taking the COVID vaccines, it was completely understandable because 
so often they had been subjected to experimentation. And you have to wonder whether there had been a more robust effort to um, reckon with this particular history if that wouldn't have saved lives during the pandemic. And, uh, and so, you know, this isn't just a case where, where it's just a, you know, a kind of um, a, 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 a bit of history, a bit of a, a very disturbing history that we need to acknowledge and, and, and recognize. It has these modern resonances. And, uh, and I think that's what, that's what um, the, the articles that you're reading are talking about. Sure. Well, do you think that more doctors are starting to question or think about the original medical experiments that led to many well-known surgical procedures? Or do you think most current doctors are just busy working and not thinking about the history of the field? No, I, th I think it is, it is beginning to change. It's not easy because, you know, entrenched, entrenched narratives, particularly when they're false, they, they, they resist that kind of revision, right? You know, that, that, um, but it's happening, you know, so one of Sims three monuments in the United States has now been removed. He had a monument in central park that's been taken down. Uh, and, and, th and that's good. And, it, and it's, it's, it's not only historians who are doing it. And some, it is, it is sometimes doctors and physicians working inside of medical organizations where there are still doctors who are quite loyal to this particular legacy. So there's, there's an ongoing debate that's happening. Um, but it's important to, to note that um, the, the concern that some have is, is that, that the reevaluation of this history and others like it is, um, is, you know, is, is part of some you know, projection of modern values into the past. And that's just not what's happening in this case. Um, Sim's greatest critics were his assistants, the doctors who were sitting right beside him as, as he worked. He had an assistant in Alabama and another in New York, and they went on to be his biggest critics. And, and other doctors, too, in, in Sims' own time, um, uh, warned against the proliferation of what he stood for. And, um, but it was these same types of doctors who tended to argue on behalf of a, of a humbler profession. So it's not really a surprise, then, that that those critics would be drowned out by those hagiographers and apologists who later worked to, um, uh, to erect both literal Sims monuments and his, his historical facade. So it is definitely happening today that, that doctors are um, beginning to recognize this history but for some, it's, it's, it amounts to an overturning of, you know, of, of decades of investment in, in a history that, that they completely believed. Um, and you know, and, and getting, getting um, those type of people to reevaluate that history is hard, but it's happening. It's just happening more slowly than, than probably a lot of people would like. Have you started thinking beyond, say, Anarcha? Do you know what you may want to write next? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I've already, um, actually I already have another book in the can, you know, I, I, um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> had, had a, a novel that I'd started, um, you know, before I wrote say Anarcha and then, and then after the book was done, I returned to it and it's, and it's kind of sitting there, but I'm working on a couple of podcasts right now. Um, and as well, um, I'm beginning to research, 
um, a story about Thurgood Marshall and his journey to uh, Korea to investigate um, African-American soldiers who were accused of, of cowardice in the beginning of the Korean War. That's interesting. Well, what books have you read recently that you enjoyed? Um, I am currently reading um, a, a brand new book by a, a young Native American writer, uh, Brendan Basham. Um, and he is, it's, it's called Swim Home to the Vanished. It's going to be appearing soon. Um, and, and it's very good. I'm, I'm enjoying that. And recently I read a biography of uh, Lydia Mariah Child by, um, uh, by a, a writer, a philosopher from uh, Colby College in Maine named Lydia Moland. Uh, it's an excellent biography um, that Lydia Mariah Child, she popped up in Say Anarcho, so I had some interest there. But, but um, that the life of Lydia Mariah Child is, is, is another really important, uh, really important history. She was an abolitionist. Uh, and so that's a couple of books that, that, that have come across my desk recently that I've enjoyed. Well, where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your books and your latest book, Say Anarcha? Sure. So, you know, they, they can just search for me, JC Hallman, um, at jchallman.com. Um, and as well, you know, I, I created, um, a, a, a resource, a couple of resources. There's a YouTube channel and there's a kind of an online archive for the sources of Say Anarcha, um, which you can find if you just search for Anarcha Archive. Uh, that was important, I thought. You know, when it comes to, to sort of overturning these entrenched narratives, it's really important not only that you write the book, but that you also give people the ability to scrutinize what it is you've done. So I've tried to put all of the sources of the book um, online so that people can engage with it and um, and they can find that at an anarchaarchive.com. Again, we've been speaking to J.C. Hallman, author of the new book, Say Anarcha, A Young Woman, A Devious Surgeon, and the Harrowing Birth of Modern Women's Health. The book is available now, so go buy a copy. And J.C., thanks for doing this interview. Sure. Thanks much. Absolutely. In later census records of Alabama, a few Anikas and Anikis were described as keeps house, or de-serve, or wife. And surely this would have included cooking. But Anarka was not a cook. She never learned to cook when she was young. But there were times, after she was too old to be brought to the Westcott house on Sundays for good food, when she carried meals in from the kitchen. A freestanding building erected a short way off from the house to prevent the spread of fires. She carried to the dining room the biscuits and the coffee that slaves coveted, but were afforded only on holidays. One morning, knowing that no one had counted or could count the huge stack of waffles that she was bringing to the table, Anarka stole one, a single waffle, crisp and delicate and melting inside her mouth, as luscious as a fulfilled promise. It was at this moment, when she compared the waffle to the goobers and the whippoorwill peas and the crackling bread and the parched corn and okra seed coffee that she now ate and drank daily, to the raccoon and the opossum on which the slaves would feast in the quarters if the missus gave the men a pass to hunt after sundown. The coon more delicate and the hair didn't stink up the meat that she realized she was a thing that was owned, 
an object like the wooden spoon that she had clutched to her chest when she walked up to the Westcott house on Sundays, or like the two coins that Priscilla Westcott dug out of the pocket of her dress to show her money, though she wouldn't let Anarka touch them.